Hey everybody, my name is Chase Hughes. I did 20 years in the US military and now I develop behavioral tactics for intelligence agencies, businesses, and regular people here in the United States. I've written two best-selling books on behavior analysis, hypnosis, behavioral profiling, influence, persuasion, and authority. Today, Dom and I are gonna be talking about what makes authority happen and what makes people become automatically obedient to human behavior. What are those traits that'll make us do something that we would probably never do in other circumstances? And what is the exact recipe of authority for ourselves? What do we need to do for ourselves to have that level of authority? I hope you can join us. Welcome back to episode two of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. This episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you in part by theawesomemusicproject.com. Connecting music, science, story to enhance mental health. Find out more about the Awesome Music Project and the AMP Foundation at theawesomemusicproject.com. All right, let us jump down on episode two of Curiosity Bites with my guest, Chase Hughes. He is a best-selling author of the Ellipsis Manual, which was originally written as a manual for intelligence operations. He's a leading military intelligence expert with 20 years of experience in creating the most advanced behavioral skills course and tactics available worldwide. Chase trains elite groups, government agencies, police in behavior science skills, including behavioral profiling, nonverbal analysis, deception detection, interrogation, and advanced behavioral investigation. Just a little bit. So lock on, lock on in on this target as we come back with my guest, Chase Hughes. Now, in the last episode, we were talking about your sort of rise through the military uh, in the naval, naval intelligence, the realization that they really weren't doing much that was particularly advanced and you being a bit obsessed with understanding human behavior. And what I asked you at the end was where, where we got to was, in this idea of command and control and you know you've got to go through the hierarchy and you've got to go through all the right channels how do you get to recognize i mean obviously you got to recognize that it was less than par and then say we need to change it and i'll do it so we have uh, and, and i worked with neic or with with those intelligence people quite a bit right and all of our intelligence, kind of everyone thinks about CIA. Mm -hmm. The most quiet intelligence agency that I think is just as powerful, if not more than the CIA, is called the DIA, which most people don't know about. This is mm. called Defense Intelligence Agency. Okay. And this is the CIA, but for the Department of Defense. Oh, okay. So if a CIA officer goes through training at somewhere they call the farm, which is at a secret location called Camp Perry, yeah. here in Virginia, <laughs> and you go through that training and you get all of this training and then you're sent out to the field. You've got to recruit an asset, develop them. They've got to spy for their own, spy for the U.S. against their own country or, you know, whatever the situation calls for or an interrogation. The tactics that were available to them that I was able to see didn't, didn't really cut it. And it was, it, it dawned on me one day 
when I saw something called the Milgram experiment. And in this Milgram experiment, the, just the quick highlights of it. Sure. Volunteers go in and they say, hey, if this guy gets the question wrong, you have to shock him. And every time he gets it wrong, you have to increase the voltage. Increase, increase, all the way up to the maximum voltage, which just said on their little panel, it said XXX, danger, severe shock. Mm -hmm. So these scientists predicted at the beginning, they formed a hypothesis, just like we do in second grade science class, that 0.09% of people would comply because they might be sociopathic. They might have some kind of a a non-emotional or a non-empathetic traits. Right. They would comply. Uh, in it turns out, a hundred percent of people complied without failure, uh, up to two hundred and fifty volts, and then around sixty-four percent of people went all the way to the very end. It's insane. I remember reading that when it first was. I'm like, that blew my mind. Yeah, to think that, you know, I, I again, it's part of uh, even enclosed, um, enclosed cognition where people put on a uniform and do a behavior. It's the same craziness. Yeah, and it's it's it, that gets done in less than an hour. So in under an hour, a total stranger talked you into murder. Mm -hmm. But it takes us three weeks to talk someone into going and pulling something out of a file cabinet. So I wonder what the hell is missing here. There's got to be right. a mystery. If this can happen at a university, and granted, for anybody who says, like, it was at a university, there's an inherent belief of safety. That's why they did it. Not true. It's been replicated hundreds of times in different yeah. environments where there was no inherent belief in safety. And there's even cases where we'll hypnotize a person, pour sulfuric acid into a container. They get to watch the acid get demonstrated on a piece of styrofoam or something. And it's swapped out for water without them knowing that it happened. And they will go throw it in a person's face. And that's in less than 10 minutes. And I can send you the research for this if you ever, if you yeah. want to show notes. So if we can if we can do that in ten minutes, we can talk someone into murder in an hour. Why aren't we capitalizing on that stuff for the intelligence community? And I, it turns out, as far as I know, after twenty thousand hours of doing this stuff, I think I've passed the twenty thousand hour mark a long time ago. I the techniques didn't exist. Right. The system didn't exist to get that all put together to where we could influence someone on that level. And that's one of the reasons that I, I wrote the ellipsis manual as an introduction to what's really capable or what's really possible with the human mind, because none of us, you cannot, no matter how much money you have, you can't buy McAfee antiviral software for your own brain. You are vulnerable to hacking at all times. There is no uh, anti-malware, antivirus. So if there's a way to get in there, we can really do some serious influence. But on the light side of this, think of what that could do for therapy. If, if, if I'm able to convince you to do pretty much anything, what if you had depression and then talk to me and, and, or someone like me was your therapist and they just 
they could fix it a lot faster. So I thought there's a there's a, a good thing here and it, there's a bad thing here. So I, I created a kind of a weapon and it's just like any other weapon. You can use it to protect your house or go do bad stuff with it. Yeah, and this is the whole thing uh, with influence. I did a training recently called ethical persuasion. And I said, everything I'm teaching you is ethical persuasion, but you can use it unethically. I, I have no control over that. Um, because ethical persuasion in my mind is giving people permission to do what it is they want to do or to go for whatever it is they want to go for. And that's what ethical persuasion is. But if you want to use it to get people to do other stuff, you can do that and you can even do it on yourself. But that, that piece there that you said, um, you know, you wrote the ellipsis manual, um, which is high powered, but neutral because you can use it any way you want. Yeah. But it's, let's just talk a little bit about that. First of all, why ellipsis manual? Because I remember seeing that as a title and thought, that's an interesting title, a weird title, but an interesting title. Because if you don't know what an ellipsis is, as in, you know, a lot of people don't, it's those three dots that follow my name. Actually, I always put three dots at the end of my name when I sign dot, dot, dot. And, and so, you know, do you know what that means as, as a person? And it means there's more. Okay. Right. That's why I put it at the end of mine. So the ellipsis manual, I thought it was a really clever, interesting and kind of vague title for something that is really a scientific breakdown of behavior in a way that I've not seen before. Tell us about that title first. Well, first, I thought it sounded cool. So that's, <laughs> so let's just get that over with. It sounds cool, so we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but second, the, just the, the three dots, if you see that anywhere in the middle of language, it means there is removed or omitted language. At the mm -hmm. end, it means there's more to follow, but in the middle, it means there's something that's not there, that no one... Missing, right. Uh, so the ellipsis always means that there's stuff that other people can't see. Yes. And as I was growing up, that was the ellipsis that I was looking for. I wanted to see, I wanted to see between the lines. I wanted to hear between the lines. I wanted to feel who that person was all between the lines. So I wanted to see all of those ellipses throughout a conversation that were in our words. So it was the ellipsis manual primarily because it sounded cool to me. Right. And, and you decided to, to build that book and build that model really. And that outline originally for intelligence as an intelligence manual. Is that right? That was the reason that I wrote it. Right. Based on what you were saying before about just realizing that they, they didn't have that technology, but was it, Was it embraced initially? I mean, was it sort of like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Or was it like, shut up, what do you know? We're the military and we've got all these answers. That's absolutely what it was. <laughs> we've, we've got all the answers. We hired a guy and he gave us this incredible advice. And here's our, here's our manual on what we do now. And I flip it open. Oh, look people in the eye, use their name, shake hands firmly. Touch, touch people frequently, make physical contact, just this 
I don't know if I can say bullshit on here. Yeah, generic bullshit is what it was. Yeah. It's generic bullshit. And it's they paid somebody, God knows how many millions of dollars to Google all of that and copy paste it into a man. <laughs> right. So uh, it, it took a while to get adopted. And mm -hmm. you know, I created a, a behavioral chart that looks like a periodic table to where we can universalize how we break down an interrogation or how we break down behavior. So it from humble beginnings of me just typing that crap into an Excel document so I could look at interrogations differently. Uh, it's now hanging on the walls in police academies and FBI and all over the nation. Yeah, like you said, it looks like a periodic table and and because of that, Chase, it looks like it's, you know, a, a periodic table is something people memorize, um, yeah. generally speaking, who, who are obviously in the fields that need it. Is that what needs to be done with this, with the behavioral? Or is it, do you think it's some, or is it there to be a reference? Or do you think the person needs to memorize it? Absolutely not. No. I've, I've had people that did it. Sure. Uh, and they know it better than I do. They'd sure. say, oh, oh, you mean uh, 122? And I'm like, what the hell is 122? Yeah. I've got, I have people that send me pictures that they've taken the table and made it into a shower curtain. Not joking. And, and they've extrapolated all this stuff. Uh, but yeah, make some flashcards and stuff. It's meant to be a reference and a training tool. And that's right. all just to help you understand how behavior, where it falls on the comfortable, uncomfortable, stressful continuum. When you look at um, behavioral stuff and you look at people who have influence and you look, you know, obviously there are the guys on the behavior panel who are very, you know, so, uh, many of you are military and, you know, you work with high political people and those kinds of things. But in the, when you look at the people in the more, entertainment side of it is there anybody you admire anybody you think of and go that guy really knows his shit or on the entertainment side yeah you know just in, in the not in the not in the normal intelligence side of things yeah i think uh darren brown's the first guy that comes to mind yeah me too i don't, I don't know how many takes that we're not seeing that are cut out or deleted but it's fascinating and entertaining, which is what he's, what it's his goal to do those. And I admire what he's able to do. And when I like, if, if one of your listeners you're watching right now, if I'm judging you on whether or not you can use this system, I judge you on two axes. So on this axis, we have a level of compliance that you're able to obtain from another person. Right. Um, on this axis is how long does it take you to get that level of compliance? Right. So we have people, I might put little dots on this graph here in multiple places. So we have time and then the level of compliance. And what we found out over time uh, is what is my staple phrase now, 80% of communication persuasion, whether or not you can do this, is who you are as a person. 10% of that is your skill and the techniques that you use. And the other 10% is the personality of the other human being. 
So I know if I have a guy who is low on suggestibility, there's a certain personality type that makes that suggestibility move upward because suggestibility is fluid based on the situation. We meet somebody who's highly socially valuable, like a celebrity, for, ex for example, on the high end, they can make us more suggestible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So situations and techniques and conversations and who you are as a person are what level those things up. So the, the, that, so, cause I think that's an important thing for people to get, you know, we were talking before about politics and the, the very intelligent people are following people who are lying and, you know, and it's pretty glaringly lying. Um, and, and I have people say to me, how does somebody who I know is intelligent follow somebody who's lying so glaringly? What is that? And, you know, one of the things that I talk about is the, is the power of authority. If you, if you give the authority to that person, they will get away with anything. One of my trainings, one of my areas of, you know, like you talked about just getting obsessed with something, one of my psychological areas of study that I was obsessed with was cult psychology. Me too. I became fascinated with cult psychology. I became fascinated with, with the de-radicalization. And I think I told you that I got involved with that. And, you know, actually one of my guests on this show, Tony was you know, ex-neo-Nazi and we spoke at the UN together about de-radicalizing and all those kinds of things. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And they said, you know, they wanted to, they were looking for a common language. What is the common language? We're trying to develop this common language for de-radicalization. And I go, as long as you try and use a common language, you will not de-radicalize anybody. And they're like, really? Yeah. And they said, well, what language did you use? And I said, Tony, what language did I use? And Tony laughs and he goes, he'd never used the word de-radicalization. I go, no, of course not. I go, do you remember the language? And he goes, Monty Python? I go, yep, that was the language. The language was rapport. That's the language. I found a way to build rapport with that person in a way that connected with them. And that authority piece and that power, it's amazing to me of how quickly people throw their own rationale out of the window. And when people used to say to me, you know, people who are in cults are idiots. And I'm like, really? Let me show you scientists. Let me show you doctors you know, highly intelligent people. There was a cult here. There's a new uh, uh, HBO running one on uh, a cult called The Vow. There's this show that's on right now. And it's about a cult leader um, who had a big place here in Vancouver. And several of my friends were involved in it. And one of my friends is actually in the show. His mom, his mom is a university psychologist She's a very good personal friend of mine. So I've known him since he was a kid and he's a really bright guy. And he took my trainings for personal development. And then when I stopped, he ended up in that very bright guy, great psychological background, understands all that. And around doctors and, and uh, really intelligent people who got involved in that. Fascinating. It's not about a lack of intelligence. And I think that that's the, the, the trap is that people think you've got to be dumb to, to fall for this. So the stuff that Chase does, yeah, well, yeah, of course, if you're a bit thick, that'll happen. Stuff Dove does, yeah, if you're a bit thick, that'll happen. No, 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 not at all. So talk to us about that myth, because I really want to help people to understand breaking down that myth of 
dumb people are suggestible and smart people are not. That's not true at all. No. Uh, the best book I've ever read on leadership in my life is a book by Caesar Milan. The dog guy. Yeah. He's the yes. professional dog trainer and he, his, it's called being the pack leader. Yep. But it's talking about how you behave translates to your dog and your, our dogs read behavior a lot more than we think. Uh, but it's a very good book on leadership. And my most memorable quote of all time from Caesar Milan is that he said, humans are the only creature on earth that will follow an unstable leader, period. Wow. A, a pack of wolves, a pack of lions, one of them starts getting unstable, bam, they're out instantly. Yep. They're out. Uh, but the reason that we tend to do that is because of what we might call the it factor or charisma that bypasses. Just think back. If, if we did something against our little tribes a million years ago, 500,000 years ago, whatever, pick a time. And we were outcast from the tribe. We don't have sex. We don't reproduce. We don't eat. So we're programmed to, become extremely obedient, what I might call hyper obedient to mm -hmm. someone who tells our brain that they're an authority figure, but not because we, we go through elementary school and they say, here's the grocery list for what an authority figure is. That's written into our DNA. Yes. And that stuff is written so deeply into our DNA that we have an automatic response to authority. We automatically respond to it. I have a six hour lecture on this, but it triggers something in our head that makes us hyper obedient. And if you're listening to this right now, none of your ancestors died a virgin. None of them. <laughs> so we have a trend. So we're starting to see a trend. <laughs> All of this authority stuff really does matter. So there are some things that trigger those things in the brain that make people say, I'm going to follow this person. And I tell you what, the most scary thing about it is it's not a conscious decision. Mm. It happens in the animal brain and the animal part of our brain is incapable of speaking any language. It's right. not capable of language, which means it's not going to tell us what, what it's deciding to do. It can't. No. So it's an automatic thing that happens. And there's, I always get these phone calls and I'm sorry to make this a long answer, Dom. No, it's good. It's great. Keep going. Uh, so I'll give you a good example of one. This guy's talking to me and he's, he said, I'll write you a huge check, uh, a big check to have all of your scripts word for word of how to do all this. And I've got, a, I have a word for word script. Here's how to get a free coffee at Starbucks on the light side of this, how to get upgraded to first class, how to do whatever you want. And I said, the scripts are not that important. And so he's FaceTiming me on a, like a, a phone or an iPad. And I said, are you in your uh, kitchen right now or in dining room? He said, yeah. I said, would you mind just give me a little tour of the kitchen area? There's a stack of dishes in the sink. There's shit all over the place. And I told him, I was like, I'd love to coach you mostly because I want that check that you were talking about, but you want to control other people. We want to learn leadership. You want to learn to be in charge of other people. 
and you can't even control yourself. That's a big fricking deal. And uh, Thomas Watson, I think is his name. He said, nothing so conclusively proves a man ability to lead other people as his ability to lead himself. And that, that matters. So I could give, I could, here's the word for word script on how to get a I don't know, free coffee at Starbucks, let's say, or mm-hmm. how to get out of a speeding ticket. Mm-hmm. Word for word, when to spike your voice, when to make eye contact, when to break away eye contact, all of that, when to touch the person, when to use their name. And I give that script to somebody with social anxiety. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. 80% of influence is who we are, is, is character. So once we level that up, the techniques are fabulous. The techniques get added on to that. And, and it's like putting it on steroids at the end. But we've got to get that point initially where compliance, you, here's what I'm, I teach any of my intelligence people, psyops people, Get to a point first where compliance is a byproduct of your behavior, then study the tactics. So could you clarify for us what you see as those characteristics? Yeah. Uh, So internally, I mean, we have a lot of character. I have 18 total. But the the internal ones for ourselves are confidence, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and enjoyment. Those are the internal qualities in us that trigger obedience in other people. And when I say discipline, I'll give you a quick definition of that. There's a lot of them out there, but I think after 20 years of study, this is the most succinct. Discipline is when you put the needs of your future self at a higher priority than your present self. And that's it. Anytime we see a failure of discipline, it's a failure to prioritize the needs of your future self. I agree with that entirely. You know, one of the things that I, in my work that I teach is, uh, I say, put your hand up if you lack discipline. And, you know, and sometimes people will put their hands up and I'll say, okay, now put your hand up if you lack discipline in any area of your life. I realize you may be a very disciplined person, but maybe you lack discipline in another area. And then everybody puts hand up. Okay. So how are you capable of having discipline with one thing and not another? If discipline is universal as in it's one thing, because you know how to do it because you did it over here, but you don't do it over there. So is discipline a single thing? And they go, well, I guess not. And they go, no, it's not. And, but I tell you what is, and they go, what meaning meaning is it. If you associate the same level of meaning, you will automatically have discipline. If you don't have meaning, it doesn't matter. So you have to use will. And if you use will, that's a conscious, focused effort. And you can do things by that, but it's freaking exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting because you're pushing against your own ego the entire time. But meaning you don't. Meaning is like, this matters more than anything else. And as you said, it's a commitment. It's a dedication to something in the future that says, you know what? This matters, not just today, but this matters 10 years, 20 years. This matters after I'm dead. So in my work around Dragonfire, I'm always saying, what is your legacy? Because when people ask me about mine, I say, 
I can tell you what my legacy is, but I'll tell you what it, what it means. And they go, what? I want to impact, positively impact the lives of the people who will never know my name and whose name I will never know. It's beyond me. And if I can do that, even though I'm feeling like a piece of crap at the moment, or I've got this going on, or I've got that going on, or that's very stressful, I have to focus in on that, then there's discipline. Yeah, I love that. Is that, is that aligned? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I think there's a lot that's one of those things you can see in people. Our, you know, we, as a species, we haven't been speaking languages very long. No. But nonverbal communication we're born with. Mm. And for anybody who says, eh, I don't know about that, babies know how to smile and frown and laugh. So nonverbal communication is genetically programmed into us. That's why it's almost universal. That being said, for 10, maybe 100, 300 million years, we've been communicating nonverbally. So the mm-hmm. animal part of our brain reads nonverbal communication. So if you got a suit on and you look like a million bucks, you've read all those shitty LinkedIn articles about how to, how to be an alpha male, how to have great posture, make good eye contact, but something's off at home. Like I've got this image here, but I've got a seven foot pile of laundry that I, that needs to be done back at home. There's what we call cognitive dissonance and that shows up. Other people can see it without knowing that they saw it. Yes. That's the point. Yeah. And that's when you have that conversation with somebody and it it goes great. But at the end, you're like, something was off Put my finger on it, but something's off here. That's when we have the failure of leadership is when you're, your activities and your behavior off camera don't match your behavior on camera. But that's, you know, that's one of the things that I, and when I'm working with leaders, Chase, that's one of the things I'm always trying to get them to understand. And it's very difficult to get across is because we like to think of ourselves as rational, logical, and we both know that's not true at all. So they say, but they never see that. They don't know the pile of laundry. They don't know that. And, and I'm like, you're absolutely right. They don't cognitively know that. But, you know, I wrote my thesis on resonance, personal emotional resonance fields. And your resonance field is carried with you. And it is whatever you, and you can say, well, that's kind of woo. No, it's not. It's not. We can actually do some great research on it now. We couldn't yeah, yeah. when I first came up with the idea 30 years ago. But this, it's, it's carried with you. And so I know that if I've had a shitty morning with my, with my partner, I know I can, I can put it on. And on the surface of it, nobody will know. But I know, and I know anybody who's really paying attention knows. But I also know that everybody else knows, even the ones who are not paying attention, but they don't know what it is they know. And that's what I said, that, yeah, that's it is that people don't know what, they don't know that they know something, but, and because they don't trust that, because it doesn't make sense, they go, oh, I don't know, someone was off, but it, maybe it's just me. No, you're reading that, pay attention. And when I work with people and they start dating, I'm like, Jesus Christ, can you not see this? This is a neon sign saying, crazy! And you're going, oh, I think she's kind of cute, and she, she's very kind, and she's done her work, no, or he's done his work. No, <laughs> woo, <Woo-hoo>! hello. <laughs> Say hello to the funny farm. <laughs> I, 
I absolutely agree. I totally agree. And there's, we're sending those signals, whether we like it or not at all times. And one thing I would give your listeners is the, if you just, if you're taking notes during this episode, where you speak from is where you will speak to. Say speak that again and give us an understanding of that. Cause that's really good. Where you speak from is where you'll speak to. So if I speak from a place of incongruence, I'm triggering incongruent feelings in the other person. If I have fear, I'm going to produce a little bit of fear. So you can extrapolate that into whatever emotion you like, but that's where we get to the point of saying like the word confidence, real authentic confidence doesn't make other people feel small. No, it, it makes other people feel confident. confident. So that's, that's where we see the difference there in authentic communication. Cause even if you're feeling fear and you're talking to someone, it's still authentic. You're just generating, you're speaking to a place of fear in that other person. They may not know that it's fear. There's not some fear trash can that everything's going into and they can identify it, but they know that it's off. Something's off. It doesn't feel right. Absolutely. Fascinating. I mean, I know you and I can go for probably several more hours, but we, we can't do it right now because we're at the end of our second part of this episode with my guest, Chase Hughes. I hope you've been enjoying the show. Remember that you can join in the conversation by going to Curiosity Bites on Facebook. We have a group in there where you can chat about this. You can also see the videos of this if you're listening to the audio inside of our new Patreon channel. If you just go to patreon.com forward slash dog baron, you'll find it in there under the dragon's lair. So we've got all kinds of great stuff for you in there as well as trainings on including things like um, <laughs> ethical persuasion and meaning-driven leadership. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to be back with part three in just a moment. 